Okay, I'm recording. It's Tuesday morning at 7.42 a.m. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm okay. <laughs> Clearly ready. I had The day is young and old. Yesterday we were talking about... Um, we were talking about that dinner about like... Um, like repressed homosexual feelings and whether we're all bisexual deep down and i I joke that i i said i I wish i was bisexual and i wish i was vegetarian because philosophically i'm both but like my appetite disagrees with me and we talked about ancient romans you know be the the, all the 11 11 of the 12 roman emperors slept with both men and women and then by odd coincidence a friend sent me something yesterday like linking like police brutality to some like repressed like some Freud they've made some image of like Freud and police brutality and 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 he said something about how Hitler was a repressed homosexual and I was like what an odd thing to say in 2020 like we don't think in these Freudian terms very much but it somehow infused my dreams and I dreamt that this I'm I'm a very affectionate person I don't have any fear of homosexuality whatsoever and in my dreams like I was in Italy and this guy was being like too touchy-feely with me and it made me uncomfortable and I got very violent with him and I took him up against the wall and I like was threatening him to like smash his face in or something and something that's just thoughts that I never have in any way shape or form and I woke up then thinking about Bernardo Bertolucci, who was a dear me- friend and mentor to me. And then, he, you know, he, he did like 30 years of Freudian analysis and he made The Conformist, which I think is one of the greatest uh, color cinematography. I think maybe the greatest color cinematography ever in any film. And um, so I woke up and was watching a little bit of like images from The Conformist and interviews with Bernardo Bertolucci. And, and you know, he had this kind of now seemingly very dated view but interesting nonetheless that you know the 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 conformist he's a fascist because he's a repressed homosexual and it was just like i just went down this like weird 1970s freudian analysis repressed sexuality entering from my conversations yesterday into my dreams and then into my love of cinema and uh and admiration for Bertolucci. Did you see the Staircase, the documentary series? No. About the guy who was charged with uh, murder for his wife ending up at the bottom of the staircase? No. Oh, I we talked Michael, about this Michael, at the pool once? Maybe Michael Peterson. I think that's his name. Uh, anyway, it, it came out in the course of the trial that he had had a, a, an affair with a man 10 years prior. Uh-huh. And, I mean, completely irrelevant to the case. Completely irrelevant, right? Yeah. But that it was admissible in part because of the South. You know, right. Part, um, and, um, but because like it was arguing a certain deviousness to his character. It's a, it's a really yeah. like kind of like fascinating social cultural moment in the, in the documentary series in part because it's like, okay, you have a jury. Uh, what is relevant? What, like of all the things a person does, what is relevant to their character? If he, if he had had a heterosexual affair 10 years prior, nobody would talk about it. Would it have come up in court? No, not at all. What would that have to do? Maybe 50 years ago, just having an affair would be enough to back then. Yeah. Sure. Establish this was, this was 20 years ago. Now 15 the bar years is, ago. Yeah. 
But yeah, it was just this implicit like amorality or immorality about his actions, and I think it was because it was a homosexual act. And um, anyway, this is just just random spewings from my half awake subconscious. Um, do with it what you will. <laughs> Dear listener, I don't know what to make of it. I still haven't processed it. Literally, like, just was opening my eyes. I watched Bertolucci being interviewed by Charlie Rose in 1994, um, having just come out with probably his worst movie, The, the Little Buddha. But um, he, I just, I got, had the privilege of spending one day each summer with him of the last, like, maybe seven or eight years before he died. I would go visit him in uh toddy about an hour from our place in rome outside of rome and just got he was in a wheelchair and um he was just one of the most interesting people i've ever met because i mean he was just his head was just so his brain was just so amazing like he was one of the people we've talked about eloquence and the ability to surprise one with words and always take the the conversation to a place of deep and surprising insight no matter what it is that you're talking about and i've always just admired that skill so much and and you know he was a poet first and then he he didn't want to be a poet because his father was a poet and he discovered cinema when he was about 20 or 16 i think he bought got his first camera and then he made his first feature when he was 21 and when he was 20 he got to work for pasolini as an assistant and um anyway just such a brilliant mind um when he died a couple of years ago, he, he uh, they put his body to lay in state at the Campidoglio, the the, the, the city hall of Rome designed yeah. by Michelangelo. And in the center was the dead body of Bernardo Bertolucci and his hands were swollen with like death and they looked huge. And my, I wasn't there, but my cousin sent me a photograph and people mm. just got to visit this dead body of this great master and, you know, icon of italian cinema history did you record the conversations i didn't record any of the conversations unfortunately with him i don't know if i even no i was always just wanting to be respectful and not too starstruck and and what would you do like how, how do you confront uh like that kind of genius or someone you respect so much when you spend time with them what do you you know i just do you just ask do you just hang out yeah What's just your... hang out and ask and and uh and you know i think always what what the great I've had privilege of knowing and getting to know some, you know, amazing genius also seems a bit old fashioned, right? Like we don't think in those terms so much anymore, but I think there's something to be said, obviously for people who are, who have done great things. Um, and what I've noticed that they have in common, cause I got to work for like Bertolucci's cinematographer, Vittorio Storaro, who won three Academy Awards and, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's production designer also did all the godfather films and everything and i was always looking for a through line with these people coppola oliver stone storaro bertolucci antonioni i got to hang out with and there was always a kind of uh freshness with which they looked at the world that they never rested on their laurels like there was a, always a sense that and there's oftentimes in the hierarchy of cinema cinema is so you know, deeply hierarchical. It's one of the last remaining true pure dictatorships, Coppola said once. Um, and in the hierarchy, there's often a second in command. So the production designer has his art director. And I would notice, I was like 20, working on the, the sets of these films, and the, the art director was always more arrogant, more, you know, I'm the art director on, you know, working for Warren Beatty or Francis Ford Coppola. And, 
you could see a certain smugness and I know it all about them. Whereas the one in charge always was looking at the world as if it was new and full of opportunity and didn't know everything yet. And I thought that that's what separates the people at the very, very top from just one level beneath that. You know, mm. you have to kind of have this this humility and openness to the unique situation. That's and do you think that's personnel management? Like they're effectively to be in command, you have to kind of be at least perceived to be open to ideas. Otherwise you get none from those below you. No, no, no. I think, I think there's a genuine, I think that, 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 that there's a genuine, it's going back to the Heidegger being in the world thing, like responsiveness to the unique situation rather than to the general situation. So that I think that the second in command was good always at like being you can rest on your laurels at a certain point because you have seen it all. You've done so many things. And so you can have this kind of posture of like being a, the, a senior official of, of being having this 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 incredible experience and seniority. And that will allow you to get almost to the top because you are you actually have had all that experience and you deserve to be smug and arrogant. There's no no one's going to tell you you can't, you know, if you yeah. won Academy Awards and you know worked on these incredible films. But the, to get from that to being the actual genius yeah. requires never being complacent, never thinking you know it, and really being open to responding to what's actually happening that you haven't seen before. And that's what I think separates the, the top from the tip, 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 top. And I would notice that with Bertolucci, he was just attentive and, and, and really listening and then really making an interesting comment about what you had to say because he wasn't just saying something he'd said before. He was saying something fresh and new and when i got to work for with oliver stone it was the same thing like every person who would come up with him with an issue he was like never like oh that's not my job like how can you how can a pa come to me about like what you know kind of like stapler is going to be on the table no that's important he understood that the everything came down to him and everything was important and everybody who came to talk to him got his undivided attention and um and it's just remarkable and it gives me chills just thinking about it like just the the that degree of presence and yeah. of uh anyway so why film alone is the last bastion of hierarchy and dictatorship i mean why not, why not also like medicine i'm thinking about my scientific career and then my journalist career there's two times this kind of this is a weird uh vulnerable story there's two times in my life i recall so my phd lab my phd advisor was a primatologist right so he we did a lot of like primate behavior and primate social behavior it was twice. Once I was walking down a hallway and I su surprisingly ran into this neuroscientist who will remain unnamed, who was top at top of the field. And it was, I was like coming out of the gym and he was coming in and in a, in a hallway. So we do this thing with mice where if you, if you take a paper towel tube and put two mice on either end, they'll mm -hmm. run and they'll meet in the middle. And then the dominant male will keep going forward and the less dominant male will like scurry backwards mm -hmm. and it's just like you can do this like in a cage with five mice there's a ranking and like if two and three meet three will back up if two and four meet four will back up if one and two meet two will back up and in the primate world you also like break eye contact and i noticed twice in my life once head of a major new york magazine second neuroscientist who's guaranteed if you wrote like a if you wrote the Nobel committee a letter every morning, like threatening their family and children, he would still win the Nobel prize. And both of these times in a split second, like hundreds of milliseconds, my eyes, I think cause I was so surprised, I actually did a thing where I averted, I averted eye contact. 
and I, and I because I'm in a primatology lab, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Am I really deferring? Is that what this is? Is this a, is this a hierarchy? I'm like taller, younger, you know, like more strapping, like all of, there's many features in which I win, but there's also implicit hierarchy to these careers, mm -hmm. right? Where these people are just badass all-stars and I deferred like with my eyes. And so, so I, and, and, and I, you know, have a lot of friends who are doctors who say there's nothing more hierarchically rigid than the medical field. Cause every single year you're effectively a quantified like category of improved like every year you're year one med school, year two med school, and then you're a resident and then you're a thing. And it's like, it's extremely hierarchical and it's extremely dictatorial. So this is, I think I would love to just spend this entire hour talking about hierarchy. I think we're, we're kind of, we backed yeah, into it was, by I accident. Was hinting, I was hinting at that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's an incredible topic because it, 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 it comes from, you know, you have this basic, primordial way that it manifests in these mice and then obviously you have this high and you know creative considerations and then you have this political considerations obviously i think of the right as being you know embracing hierarchy and i think of the left as trying to question hierarchy mm -hmm. and um and and of course like so dali for example was very reactionary right you know unapologetically right wing very unusual for an artist right you think of artists as trying to re question reorder uh, you know always but but dali said no everything is hierarchy and like don't be afraid of uh, attaining you know of, of seeking perfection you're never going to get it so you might as well try you know and he was so into like you know the the discipline of like you know perfect uh, technique and so you think of that as kind of a hierarchical uh, pursuit, but then also it's why people I think are rightly a little bit dismissive of Dali's art. Like it seems a little facile. It's impressive on a kind of technical level, but you know, like people who are really into like, you know, people who are serious in the art world think of him as a kind of, you know, easy for the common man to appreciate, yeah. but like not really that deep. It has this kind of, I think, and maybe now I'm thinking, having this thought as we speak, so I don't know if I can iterate it well, but like the, uh, what I was saying earlier about the second in command, they're the ones who were embracing the hierarchy. They were right. proud of themselves for being in the hierarchy and wanted to reinforce it and show the production assistants that they are better. Whereas I never got that feeling working for Storaro or, or Tavalaris or these people. Yes, they had power, but they also had this, you could approachability. Like I never got a sense from Bertolucci that like, I'm better than you. Don't, right. don't talk to me. Like, well, that's it, part of the skill and mastery, I think. Right. So like yeah. the effortless, <clears throat> the effortless aesthetic of high, high skill or high, high command is to make it look effortless. Right. Like the, the, the absolute most elegant ballerina or the, the best of the best. When you look at like soccer players, uh, um, like Lionel Messi kind of like they just, they just go through the field that they, they somehow just have the ball and they just move through even other professionals. And I think the difference between like perhaps even in command, which I think is in aesthetic art, the same way as all kinds of other like skill-based displays, you, if, if it looks, it looks effortless at the top, right? When you're the best of the best, yeah. when you're at the absolute but top. But it's in some sense that was dependent on the hierarchy underneath. And oh, to yeah, not acknowledge absolutely. that. Well, like Lionel Messi doesn't look like he's gliding through water. 
even though these are professional soccer players trying to stop him, unless there's those professional soccer players around him, which in some sense elevate his performance by virtue of their existence and by virtue of them being there and being less good and being less elegant in some way. So command, I'm sure, works works kind of similarly, where if you're concerned with hierarchy, you can never be at the top, right? Like if you're obviously performing and arrogant in that way that the, the PA yeah. was or the kind of the two, two command, through ten yeah. are, yeah. You know, th- because they embrace it because they're so close to the top. But the top of the top, it's effortless. You have to make the, the appearance of great effortless. So my great-grandfather was this, you know, one very old-fashioned prince. Um, he never kind of entered even the 20th century, even though he was born in the 1860s, I think. Died in the 1950s. But I would always hear these stories about him because he was so dependent on his butler slash manservant that he couldn't do anything without him he couldn't get dressed he couldn't eat he couldn't like he was a chauffeur he was like dress him it was a little like Bertie and jeeves if you, for those of you who have read woodhouse if you haven't you should um and so and the butler in a way embraced the hierarchy even more than the prince and the story that my my father would tell to to uh to kind of reinforce this was that there was like communists marching in the streets of the town of Vignanello where the Rispoli Castle is. And my grandfather, my great grandfather and his butler was looking out through the window and one of the placards that they were holding up were, was protesting the fact that the, uh, the lower person had to speak to the person they were working for with lay, which is the formal like vu in French. Yeah. And then the other way around, they were saying two, right? And they were saying everybody should say two to everybody. We shouldn't have this kind of hierarchy of language like this. Yeah. And so my great-grandfather turned to his butler and says, with horror, said, are you going to start saying two to me, right? Which is the informal you. And the butler said, no, because any, any pleasure that I could possibly attain from saying two to you would be completely obliterated by having to hear the assistant butler say two to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's great. Uh, do you know about this thing, displacement aggression? No. The phrase. So I'm, I'm trying to get at the difference between like, uh, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm 90% using facts and 10% using theory. I just made up on the spot. Okay. Um, <clears throat> <Noted>. This, <laughs> well, just this interesting idea that maybe hierarchy for those not at the very, very top is a bit more, at issue for them, yeah, right? Consequential, in a way. And, and so displacement aggression is, in primate world, if you're number one and you go and slap around number two, number two, it can't take it out on you. Can't take it out on number one, just physically, emotionally, socially. So they go to number five and slap number five around. And number five goes and slaps number nine around. And it's this downhill displacement aggression where without an outlet, if you, you, can't, you can't attack back, you can't reciprocate against the target that attacked you. And so one way to think about this is number two through infinity, two through N, they can displace their aggression. And it's called displacement aggression as you go downhill. Number one is just called aggression. It's not displacement aggression, right? It's, you, have, you have free reign to aggress or aggrieve um, anyone, right? And then, but everyone else has to deal, and by virtue of them having to notice. So if you're number four, you have to know the difference between three through one and five through N, right? And so you have to be attuned to the hierarchy and attuned to the levels to know who you can go pick on. Whereas if you're one, you don't have to think about it because you can pick on anyone. And uh, I remember once in 
in San Francisco, uh, getting off. I was doing research early, early in my career at uh, UCSF at some hospital. And uh, they had this Muni. Muni is the most, like, aggravating thing in the goddamn world. It's just San Francisco infrastructure. It's just barbaric. And, um, uh, oh, come on, it's not barbaric, but it's slow. It's annoying. So anyway, Muni. Muni's frustrating. And this woman, um, wearing nurse scrubs, comes out of the hospital straight onto the Muni, right? And she, uh, the, the driver of the Muni kind of accelerates somewhat quickly while she's still standing. And she just s- proceeds for the next few minutes to berate him through the window while he's driving all of us, right? She just stands there and yells at him and berates him and says, I can't believe you did that. That's really dangerous. I can't believe you did that. Maybe there's some reason. Maybe she just had to deal with a patient who that exact same thing happened to and broke her hip and died. I don't know. But she then, as this guy's still driving us, all of us, it's fucking rush hour in San Francisco. Nobody's having a good time, right? Uh, she takes her phone out and calls the number that says, if you have a complaint, here's the driver ID. And so while into his like right ear, as he's driving us, she starts on the phone saying, I have a complaint about driver XYZ, you know, ID number X. He did this and that and this. And I called the same number within earshot of her. While she, so she could listen to me. Uh-huh. And I said, I just want you to know that this woman is, it's called displacement aggression. She clearly had a bad day and she's now trying to pick on the muni driver. So whatever she complained about, you should completely ignore. <laughs> and like, Amazing. it was it was clearly, she was stressed to all high hell. She came out of, I mean, being effectively, you know, nurse is not the top of the hierarchy in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed so clear to me that she was just displacing her aggression onto this poor muni driver. And the person at the top maybe is you're saying is so dependent on all the aggression going on underneath and and so able to do whatever they want that they don't need to reinforce the their uh, their higher they don't need to reinforce the concept of hierarchy because exactly. their entire being is just only aided by it yes they c- it can be invisible to them so as to appear to be effortless so as to appear that they're not worried about it but right. it's because of the kind of uh uh platter of options available to them to be uh to pick on effectively so i i guess i just only want to argue that there are dictatorships everywhere all around the world if you look closely yeah no i mean it definitely makes me so so i i think my my disposition is to question hierarchy and i do think that obviously there's 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 the hierarchy and then there is the way the hierarchy happens to be structured so you could you could agree with the concept of hierarchy and disagree with the way it's the way it's spread around, right? So now yeah. when we question the the power that the police has, you can believe there should be hierarchy in the hospital and on a movie set, and disagree with the fact that these you know small minded sadistic you know criminal petty minds get to have all this power over other people somewhat arbitrarily, right? So I'm I'm wondering if you can embrace. Ob- the places where hierarchy I, i'm wondering if you can keep a kind of anarchic mentality by questioning and rebelling against the existing hierarchies while still embracing some form of abstract hierarchy in ways that it is actually beautiful or helpful to like artistic creation let's say for example or saving people in a hospital room or something like that or is the progressive anarchic left-wing view committed to questioning hierarchy itself you know like that what are what is our goal as 
as you know revolutionaries in whatever sense we want to be revolutionaries in the sense that we want change and progress how much are we committed to the idea of doing away with hierarchy versus how much are we committed to doing away with the hierarchy as it is as right. it stands right? <laughs> right 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 so on that note then my, my second little youtube morning uh meandering was a, a uh an interview with bertrand russell from 1952 and it just popped up on my after the bertolucci interview as a as something suggested to watch and bertrand russell was the kind of reason i got into philosophy i read him in high school why i'm not a christian and history of western philosophy and i was just so taken by his intelligence and his passion and and he was a early anti-hierarchicalist yeah, yeah. um you know advocating for free love already in the 1910s and 20s right, and right. and he was born in 1872 and you watch this interview on youtube he's just a, you know a film that interviewed was that no nothing and um and he talks about you know he talks about his grandfather he, his parents born were, were died when he was an infant and his grandfather charlie rose is interviewing him and no, wait, sorry. Charlie no. Rose was interviewing Bertolucci. <laughs> sorry, my brain is still waking up. Um, the interviewer asks Bertrand Russell, like, what can you tell us about your grandfather who raised you? And he's like, well, he was born uh, during the French Revolution. And he was in Parliament. <laughs> he was Napoleonic general. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he was in Parliament during Napoleon. And, and here's a guy you're just watching a movie, like, of an interview with. And and you were talking the other day about the our inability to understand temporal, you know. Yeah. The temporal horizon of the past appears much, much, like much more compressed and kind of quicker than if you imagine the same amount and duration of years into the future. Oh, you think it's different from the past and the future, huh? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you think about like eighteen twenty, mm -hmm. you know, and you ask like, okay, draw on a line how far back arbitrary units, like on a piece of paper, to you know, here the middle of the paper is the present. Draw mm -hmm. on a line backwards how far back you think eighteen twenty is. You know, they put a thing, and then yeah. how far into the future? Does 2220 feel? Mm -hmm. It it's feels much farther. much farther into the future than, respectively, 1820 feels into the past. Even though, and why is that? Well, I don't know. You just you just like observe this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um. Anyway, Bertrand Russell. I just want to stay on him a little bit because he was just such a wonderful, brilliant mind. And again, we can then go back to like thoughts on on hierarchy. But he was, you know. As a young, brilliant mind, he was wanted to. He was looking for some certainty in the world, and he uh, so he thought maybe it would be found in mathematics. And uh, so he 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 spent ten years with Alfred North Whitehead, like trying to find the origins of mathematics in logic. It takes, I think, up to page three hundred and fifty of the Principia Mathematica to even define the number one, and. Um, so he thought that he could find some truth there. And uh, then in 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 a, another interview I saw with him when he was like 98, he was looking back on his career and he said, you know, I, I, I was very intelligent in my 20s. My brain worked really well. And so I was doing mathematical work. But then as you age, your brain deteriorates a little bit. And um, I, he said after by the time I was 30, my brain didn't work well enough to do mathematics anymore. I became too dumb for mathematics. So I got into philosophy. And then he said, I, you know, I was there. He was looking to find some truth also because he thought maybe he could find some basis in like religion and ethics. And and he found the opposite. He said it, it, he found that it questioned all of 
those things and that's what bothered everybody about doing philosophy and and how what a like essentially rebellious act it was to to question all of our our mores and but what was interesting is that it led him to what i think of as more ethical views like he was a pacifist during world war one when everybody else was gung-ho about war and he was advocating for free love because he thought that the strictures of of the church with sexuality were wrong so it was a moral view but it was a moral view based on like looking at things with with a questioning eye and questioning this the authority of the of the church when it didn't really wasn't founded in any anything rational or true right yeah. and then he said i became too dumb for philosophy once i got to age 70 my brain deteriorated even more and i got into politics and then he was you know was like marching against the war and against the nuclear bomb and everything and and i remember telling this story to my my brother's mother-in-law she was uh uh in the one of the ferragamo family and they're this big family one of the, the only family that still owns the uh you know these big fashion brands that are now mostly owned by conglomerates and and we, i just we were meeting the ferragamo family for the first time because my brother was marrying into the family my older brother and i happened to tell this story of bertrand russell i don't know why it came up and without missing a beat mrs ferragamo turned to me after i said that he became too dumb for philosophy and got into politics and she said let me guess after that fashion and <laughs> she, it was this wonderful self-deprecating uh, yeah. <laughs> reaction but anyway i'm very very interested in how what should our relationship to hierarchy and thereby authority be because i'm a i'm deeply suspicious of power i think that's what makes somebody radical or or you know progressive or I'm, I'm, i noticed your phrase married into a family yeah I was, I was trying to think of whoever uh, or whenever or if ever i get married like how odd it would be if they described like getting married into my family which they wouldn't do which is a hierarchical term that i think means like it's a successful family right yeah, like, for sure. but that's a very weird thing that we have a phrase we have a category of ways of describing just a verb married <laughs> into, into like yeah. that uh clearly it's like families at the time it's hierarchical families right very so even so. even our language is reflecting this yeah no one would say i married into the house family <laughs> <They're very dumb. laughs> like oh, what'd you get down great. to the house family <laughs> great you get to split my student loan debt <laughs> now we own half now we own half each yeah so no and then now it's occurring to me like maybe this kind of like disdain that is had by you know it's, it's ironic right that 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 the left is seen now as this kind of elitist um group and often in the middle of america the red states they think of people who are liberal as being and so it occurs to me that there might be a sense that 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 by what you know, it used to be that the left was a working class, um, you know, like you would have unions and, 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 and workers joining the left. And now a lot of those people have, have become right wing, right? You have a lot of, a lot of people in the middle of America who would traditionally have, and they see the concerns of the contemporary left as being elitist and not really in touch with their concerns. Right. Sure. And I'm wondering if they think of, our questioning of the hierarchies that that you know whether it's police whether it's racial injustice whether it's incarceration all of these things that we question they might see it as 
only possible against the background of a hierarchy in which they are the underlings. You know what I'm saying? Like th that's why yeah. there's this kind of like this sense of elitism amongst people who are ostensibly questioning hierarchy. Well, there's also like, what, what do you believe are the borders of your tribe? Do you believe it's the small town? Do you believe it's the family unit? Do you believe it's the small town you live in? Do you believe it's the city? Do you believe it's the state Hence, state's rights? Do you believe it's the country? Hence xenophobia. Do you believe it's the whole planet? And hence like your Gaia, if you do, you know, like it, it's about kind of in some sense, the hierarchy as it's, as it's defined by the borders of the tribe, as it's defined by what you count as your in-group versus out-group. And I think a lot of like political persuasions might just be based on some genetic switch about how many people you expect to be in your troop. And if it's just approximately the size of a state, you're gung-ho states' rights. If it's approximately the size of a country, you're like, you know, that's our border, it's us versus them, it's US versus everyone else. But if you're just a little bit more holistic, your hierarchy can you know, contain the whole globe. And then it becomes also beyond humans and you become get into animal oh, yeah. rights and like, and why should we kill animals for our... Right, right. Is the, is the human at the top of the evolutionary biological consciousness hierarchy? So and, that's... and some people think yes, and some people think it's a steep drop-off between human and everything else, and some people think it's a slow graded slope. And based on just that internal impression, this, that con the way you visualize the concept of the category, of so... the hierarchy, like leads to... The moral choices we make about who would you know which do we eat which do we slaughter you know pigs are hierarchically more important for jewish cultures cows are hierarchically more important than other animals for indian cultures um or muslim cultures and uh you know cats you in ancient egypt you had to save if a cat was in danger it was illegal not to try to save that cat from a burning building and so you just have these implicit hierarchies everywhere that are shaping the behavior but as we as we grow the sense of the, the in-group, there is a sense where you start to say, okay, well, then we need to abolish the... There, there, is, there does seem to be a sense of the abolition of the hierarchies as you get bigger and bigger. So if you say all of humanity, and again, it's this kind of cliche, like new, you know, hippie idea, like we're all, you know, citizens of the world and we have to take care of, the, of, the, of, of the, our, our shared planet and we have to share it with the animals and with each other and, and have a peace and that seems that as you get higher and higher it does seem like you are abolishing the hierarchy right yeah at You're some point it becomes it. definitely impossible if you have uh like a homogenous if you don't have these in-group group things i mean i think so i think it's interesting people have talked a lot about like this generation is probably going to encode a lot of the values for ai systems or you know, artificial intelligence systems and uh, the question is like, are we ready as a world to, is this the m moment in time at the moral snapshot that we really want to take where AI become like early 21st century people on this planet? Cause like we still have the untouchables in India. It's like a, a vast percentage of the people on this planet are existing at the, like socially castigated down at the very bottom where everything is different. It's appalling. It's absolutely appalling that like we still have this present day on a planet as it exists right now. And so like we're not I don't even think we're close to ready to freeze frame and snapshot our our kind of moral codes. Yeah. And then you get to the point also where if you you know it can become an embracing of like 
once you do away with all of these borders, then you start to embrace a kind of globalism. And that globalism can have these accidental kind of new power structures that come up, whether they're corporate or... And so then there can be a resistance to that, which turns into a localism again. Right. And then you have this meeting of left and right where they're at the extremes, they kind of go to the same place. And then, so that we were talking yesterday in the in the hot tub before you came back about Heidegger's... Um, Do stuff without me. <laughs> he left. <laughs> it's his fault. But um, we were talking about Heidegger's Nazism, right? And this is very problematic for anybody who... Uh, is interested in his thought, you know, tempered somewhat by the fact that everybody who took up Heidegger after, you know, afterwards as the basis of their philosophy were a lot of very progressive left-wing thinkers, whether it's Foucault or Deleuze or, or Bert Dreyfus, who was a Jewish left-wing intellectual, like he had, didn't seem to have a problem with Heidegger's horrible politics. Right. Yeah. Um, but then you look inside the philosophy and you say, is it in there? Cause that would be right. really problematic. Right. And I think it's in there in the sense of like this wanting to embrace the local, right? Of like wanting to like he wanted to like resist globalization affecting German identity, right? right, right. And you can see that being both a left wing and a right wing concern and with a different fl flavor, obviously, right? But the idea of like not allowing some global power to destroy the meaningful differences between people, between cultures and everything. Yeah. So at what point does that become violent and, you know, horrific in the sense of like, okay, destroying the other. And at what, and at what point does, does embracing differences celebrate those differences? And that, what is it, the different philosophical underpinning between those two worldviews that are so they can meet in this uncomfortable place? But one is fascist and reactionary and one is, you know, progressive. And then and then, of course, there's a, the other extreme, which is a kind of dictatorial left. Right. There's this uh, robotics competition in Germany called RoboCup. If that's held every year, it's, it's little little robots uh -huh. that are playing soccer okay. <laughs> and they're terrible at it. Right. Or they've been historically, they've been terrible at it. They're, they're like moving and kicking a ball is like a very difficult task, harder than self-driving cars. And. So for a while, they were each team was controlled by a central computer, uh, which kind of like you know uh, uh, moved and strategized with each as if it's like a, an appendage on a single unified uh, uh, control system. And then they switched at some point to decentralized, which means each of the robots is independently controlled. Mm -hmm. They have eyes, they have cameras, you know, looking out. And they have, what that means is that when they start the game, one of the interesting things they have to do is determine which team they're on. It's not, it's not pre-programmed which team they're on. And so they use, th these things are like kind of coffee cup sized little robots that run around and kick like a little ping pong. Um, so how do you determine which team you're on? They use their eyes to look at jersey color. So they're literally using like skin color to say us versus them. And then if they have to, they have to build in rules about who's on your team and who's not on your team. So they end up having like, okay, I have the same color skin as that other robot. I'm going to treat that robot differently than I'm going to treat this other colored skin robot. And the, uh, you know, if it's the opponent, they'll sometimes tackle the opponent if it's useful. But if it's on the same team, because you're playing a team sport, you'll back off and you'll cooperate. And so like, it's such an innocent little thing. 
It's such an innocent little sporting event. But what these programmers did and these roboticists did is they effectively built in the worst of humanity quickly into these little robots, right? Like visually skin colored based us versus them. You're on my team. I won't hurt you. You're, you're not on my team. I'm going to hurt you. Well, sports are inherently fascistic. Maybe it's all about uniforms and us versus them and hierarchy yeah. and all of the things that we're questioning right now. Well, and so there is, there is this, um, old study, uh, like fifties or sixties, I believe that was looking at, um, teenage boys as they came to camp and then they arbitrarily assigned them two groups and they just had them compete, like, like come to camp for a week. And we're going to do a lot of kind of like, you know, team based randomly assigned so these kids just didn't you know it, it didn't matter which team they're on but as soon as they made the teams it got so violent and nasty that they had to cancel the experiment because of how hostile both sides were being to each other these arbitrarily chosen in groups and out groups and they what they ended up doing which was not part of the experimental protocol at first but they ended up wanting to like figure out like how do you how do you undo this like look what we did we we arbitrarily drew divis like division lines between these groups of teenage boys. And then they ended up just almost killing each other because you created competition and competition for resources. It was like, you guys only eat if you win. It was a survivor style, right? Mm -hmm. And they created an imaginary third group that was hostile to both groups. Mm -hmm. And it's the only thing that caused them to work together right. is having this imaginary third party that a third in group or third out group, excuse me. And it's so funny, like just listening to discourse and political discourse, how often it is the case that in order to unify your one's base, in order to try to reach across the aisle, you create an imaginary third group out yeah. of scratch. It could be the Middle East for a while, you know, like in the yeah. early 20 years ago. I mean, there's obvious dangers there and there's obvious real It could be imaginary there. or real. Yeah. yeah, it could be imaginary or real, but it's often a fictive blend of the two, right? It's mostly right. this story concocted about, oh, immigrants on the border or oh here's someone on the other side of the world who's trying to do us harm or yeah. oh here's a political belief system communism that we don't believe in right. you know it's this like it's this just straight out of this one study right straight out of this primate thing of just create a third independence day does this suddenly there's global cooperation arrival you know every science fiction where aliens come humanity unites to, to against this third this third out group so it's the secret to like solving hierarchical kind of cluster problems. So is there a way that you can have meaningful differences without hierarchy is my question. Like that's a, that's a kind right. of anarchist. That's the ants, the bees. I mean, if you look at eusocial insects, animals, plant, or no, it can't be a eusocial plant. Um, What's eusocial mean? Like true sociality where things are like homogenous. Uh -huh. So it's the question of like, do ants, ants have castes, right? And colonies have castes. Termite colonies have castes. Bee colonies have castes. But everything's genetically identical, and there's no there's supposed to be no difference between each of the worker ants or worker bees. And so that's that that's kind of your question. Like, yes, there's hierarchy in there, but can you have differentiation, or do you want differentiation amongst those of the same strata mm -hmm. in your in your caste? Yeah, but. Uh, or 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 even but so so you're saying but that's just taking it for granted that we do need the hierarchy at some level, even that there are, the, you know, that there are the castes. I'm, I'm you're, wondering you're thinking if the, castless entire 
yeah are there cooperative groups that that are able to work without like an intrinsic structural power that one individual has over another yeah. like can you question that again my in my disposition is anarchic in that sense like i want to you know abolish the police i i, I do think they cause more harm than good right but i also understand the point of view that says no you need control you need structure you need uh you need some sort of sense of like i guess of dominance of some kind in in certain domains right in the domain and so then so in filmmaking right you wouldn't want you wouldn't want a democratic film set no you wouldn't yeah. want like a, a, a to have to make each decision by by consensus i've had to write essays by committee it's a goddamn nightmare I mean, it's so difficult, right? I mean, I, I, any artistic thing where you have like a single kind of author. Where, I mean, we do single author stuff. That's what humans kind of do. Most of our artistic outputs are single author stuff, right? Yeah, although well, no, there's been great collaborations. Oh, yeah. I, I'm talking statistically. Most of them are, yeah. come from a part. You know, like it, it requires the kind of unity of vision, unity of decision making. So, so, the, so the, you know, the, the deeply right-wing person who believes just in the in the the intrinsic necessity and beauty of like entrenched power structures can point to that usually again we think of of art and creativity as an as a as a breaking down of boundaries in some way but then you could they could argue i could imagine and it'd be hard to dismiss it how all of these structures have given birth to you know uh efficient manifestation of creativity and of individual you know uh expression whether it's the catholic church and their all the great architecture and paintings that came from that that came from hierarchy right um and then even people who have responded to that and even rejected it they can say uh, you know, it's actually just a dialogue with something that that has formed them, right? So I, I don't know. It's just a really I'm really interested as an artist. Like, what should our relationship to the very conception of hierarchy and the very existence of it be? Should we be constantly questioning it and rejecting it? And should it be the content of it and the way it happens to be, or should it be the actual uh, existence of hierarchy? I don't know the answer. I'm just—it's it's something that I think is you would spend a, a lifetime thinking about. Have you ever gotten into a fight from eye contact alone? Like when I was in high school, yeah. Like yeah. you would say, "Oh, you're mad dogging me" or something. It was the word. Like I remember just being in the mall and and like just making with, eye with contact a man. with somebody. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, "Why'd you look at me?" And I remember like, and I've never gotten in a fight in my life, and this guy just started picking on me for like yeah. looking at him. In grad school, uh, there's a kind of local pub, and I went there alone after some long, long work day. And I was just standing outside kind of looking around and I wasn't there with anyone. I was just having a beer and relaxing. And um, I just saw like an interesting looking group of people that I just kept like as I was scanning the room, just standing there drinking my beer. Uh, like I, I kind of like casually saw a few times and there's just one guy and he was, just kept looking at me. And I just kind of like made eye contact with him a few times. Right. Yeah. And they looked like an interesting group of people. They looked social. They were friendly. They were happy and everything. So I, and I was just like decided to maybe like walk over and say hi, see what's up. And as I'm halfway there, the guy 
stands up, like postures, says, what the fuck are you doing? Like wow. yells it, it's the whole bar silent. And as soon as he stood up, his friend next to him like grabbed his arms. Like, like without even knowing, he just could see something was up. Like whatever it was about the way that the man stood, his friend who was right next to him, like immediately restrained him. And I thought that was an interesting detail, like pre-verbally, he was already being restrained. And I was like, whoa, I, I completely misinterpreted the situation, right? Yeah. And uh, I was like, okay, whoa, 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 I just like want to chat and exchange witticisms. And um, and this so, was at Stanford? Yeah, this was at Stanford. And then so a guy comes up to me a little bit, or I think it was a woman at the table, comes up to me a little bit, she, and she was like, look, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we're here celebrating. The guy just got out of prison. Ooh. He spent eight years in prison. Oh, wow. And I was like, I had so misinterpreted. I was, you know, f- friendly research scientists from Palo Alto were like eye contact is just either like it's just like an expression of interest it's what not it's not dominance yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not reflection of pre- yeah. you know hierarchy or submissiveness or attempt or aggression or anything yeah and so I realized that like how much society is completely removed from these things that we can revert back to yeah. if we get put in a hierarchical I mean prisons are you you get beaten into submission because of the hierarchy right yeah and just that like eye contact resurrects as a threat display yeah in the way that it is across every other primate yeah and i just had been dissociated from that so now i want to i'd love to go back to the 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 beginning of our conversation about um repressed sexuality and how that feeds into this because so i took my one of my favorite classes at berkeley was uh alan dundee's folklore class he was the and still is probably the most famous folklorist who ever lived and he was one of the last remaining Freudians. And um, he said, when you look at, he, we had like a whole lecture on, on sports and he talked about all of the phallic, uh, all of the kind of symbolism that's in American football, right? And that you're trying to penetrate the opposing, opposing team and you've got this kind of like, like phallic ball and then you've got the, the wide, uh, the tight ends and the wide receivers and you've got this kind of like macho kind of uh, posturing amongst the players and everything and it's women are excluded and 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 he said you know well, as i'm talking about this to try and extrapolate to war and uh, prisons and all of these things that are uh, all other sports and all these things that men engage in exclusively right and he why is there for example he said there's all this kind of homosexual undertones and then there's this extreme homophobia amongst the people who are engaging in this in this activity and his conclusion and again this is a very old-fashioned way of seeing it but i think it's interesting and worth thinking about he said that the 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 whole enterprise of playing american football is to emasculate the opponent to penetrate him to dominate him and if perchance the opponent enjoys it and wants it, it defeats the entire purpose and the identity of the of the of the player is questioned. So that's why if the if if the opponent if, if you find out that in this macho manly world that the that you with a guy and you pat him in the butt as they do and they actually enjoy it and actually want to be penetrated in this way, suddenly the whole enterprise collapses, according to this to this to this view, right? And um so I was just thinking, you know, and the Bertolucci in, in The Conformist, he thinks that there's this very fat proto-fascist guy who's embracing the hierarchy and everything like this. 
and then the, the the kind of conclusion is that that he's homosexual and unable to face that and therefore it manifests in this violence right and that's what happened in my dream it was really weird like i've never had this sort of dream before i've never had a violent i've had one fight in the eighth grade i've never like had a uh, uh, inclination to violence right I told you there's there's a bunch of ash in the air from a new fire the the, the mammalian body perceives that as anxiety you're going to have anxiety dreams you're going to have diff everyone everyone in this entire area is probably having yeah anxiety we have the, dreams. this crazy huge smoke and, right and ash outside and everything but so so i'm wondering if so now progressive people are rightly saying like let people have more fluid sexuality let's break down those boundaries right and um and let's allow people to express their sexuality in the way that they want. And I think that there's an undercurrent belief that that will lead to a less violent world, right? I think that that um, these expressions of like, I mean, we still see people being dragged by from a truck for being gay, right? I mean, like this was, and 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 a, and a, I remember traveling with a man, with a black man from across the country through Texas, we decided to drive my dear friend Shannon McCollum and I, and we were just like stop in a restaurant and we were just very good friends. And you know, like the, the, the scene of these two men of different races hanging out together with our kind of more Metro California, California style. Oh my God. I was afraid in some places just yeah. sitting in a, in a restaurant in Texas, like with this guy and like, um, so, so to what degree are is the reinforcement of these hierarchies and these differences of like, you know, uh, you know, rejection of certain like, you know, unacceptable manifestations of sexuality? Uh, how much does it do these types of hierarchies reinforce a more violent system? To me, it's not a coincidence that you have these in these more conservative reactionary parts of the country, you have homophobia mixed with police brutality mixed with um fear of the outsider and this you know so this it there is the sense that the hierarchy becomes this perverse um repressive uh horrible thing that if you the more the quicker we break it down the better and then on the other hand you have hierarchy inside uh you know structures in which you're not going to get that violence whether it's a movie set or a or a hospital and it's efficient and it's a good way to to uh to get things done right so the question is how how do we pick out the good hierarchies from the bad i would love to um well and are we even out? able to distance ourselves from it there's this weird i'm gonna maybe call it a statistic um at least a finding that i remember reading about where uh if you look at birth rates in countries that are in cities when they win a large sporting event there's like a spike nine months later in births, right? So you win the, your team wins the Super Bowl. Everyone's banging that evening in the town that mm -hmm. wins. Not true in the city that loses, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, if we truly want to dismiss a hierarchy, how do we dismiss the basic response to co competitive victory that we have? Because, uh, I mean, a lot of these fighting, these proto sports, these proto battles, uh, between men, between men and women, between so many things. There's a victor, usually. Our competitions have victors and they have winners. And there's a response that you get when you win. And that response is hierarchical. 
to to win to become to ascend to the alpha rank in a primate troop you have to beat up everyone along the way you have to go beat the alpha but that's why i mean and when you go to the to college and the 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 bros the more kind of hierarchically minded more right-wing people are into fraternities and sports and all this kind of stuff and the artists and the hippies are like dismissive of that and you don't see an interest as much in the, in in these kind of but, macho hierarchy based uh, yeah. endeavors, right? And the yeah. military too. Like I, I don't know. I mean, like, I I never occurred to me to want to go to the army, right? Because I have a I have an allergy to the idea of like macho hierarchy. Yeah, so I, I could see there being an inclination toward the hierarchical your hierarchical instincts, and then you choose. In the world, you have available to you many things which are very hierarchical and those which are less. And so those who have this inclination to be less hierarchical might gravitate towards the less hierarchical kind of careers, domains, arts. Um, but I still think deeply in there is a response to competition, right? Like is, is it, is it, there's a physiological hormonal response that you get even while watching a team that you associate with win. Yeah. And so if we're going to completely, in the thought experiment, we're abolishing as much hierarchy as we can. It's still the case that things are going to, there's still going to be uh, affairs where someone feels lesser than because they've been selected against, you know, like which is establishing hierarchy within family units, within social units, within social groups. They'll still be, they'll still be alphas within a group of people, right? So we're not going to be like, regardless of the institutional structure, if we abolish corporations, we abolish borders, we're still going to have social unit groups like the mice running through the paper towel tube. Stick five mice in a cage. They establish a hierarchy, and that hierarchy is physically manifested in their behavior. You're going to have that still. So but we have to, it depends also, like, I mean, there are different manifestations also amongst different uh different species right there's the, yeah. the we have to get chris ryan on here talking about the bonobos versus the chimps right but like it seems they're equally this uh, close to humans and the chimps are much more violent much yeah. more hierarchy based much more you know they, they 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 have dominance groups and they have competition and the the bonobos that were as closely related to there's never been an instance of a bonobo killing another one and they have orgies and they have like they use sex to like uh, you know, instead of to dominate, to kind of resolve conflict and enjoy they themselves. Still have, they and... still have hierarchy. They st you do the a female uh, baby infant bonobo inherits the rank of her mother. Mm -hmm. That might, uh, I'm not 100% sure that's true with bonobos, actually. <laughs> I take that back. I study the bonobos. It's true with that's, one that's... of the primates somewhere. But so, I mean, so I don't know if they have hierarchy, actually. I don't know if they have ranking. If they do, um, it's probably the case that children will inherit the ranking of their parents. Which is so there's still hierarchy. Yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm just saying. Supposedly they're the, they're the more hippie. There's the the the, the, the yeah. bonobos are hippie and the chimps are more like Republican. Right. right. No, I I get the kind of like point of these categories and right and left and the comparison between those that are more or less hierarchical. But I guess my argument is that even those that are fully on the extreme of as little hierarchy as possible, mm -hmm. you're still going to find traces of hormonal response to competition, which establishes some kind of hierarchy, and probably social ranking which is still hierarchical you're still going to get displacement aggression you're still going to get the nurse who picks on the muni driver and me who picks on the nurse and you know or like defends the muni driver effectively yeah. um you're, you're still going to have things like that so it's only the case that the thought experiment of let's remove as much hierarchy and border as we can can only go so far there's a limit to it i would love if we to see what it would look like to become eusocial become like termites or like humanity i guess that's communism 
say communism. Yeah, yeah or or a, or a kind of egalitarian tribalism, which I think people like Chris Ryan advocate for. That once, if you have a closeness, and Terence McKenna was very into this. When you had a closeness to nature, he, he his thought, and I, I like this a lot, was that like psychedelics were great for abolishing for kind of dismantling boundaries and hierarchies and that the reason that that civilizations or cultures are so threatened by that is because they depend on those boundaries existing that's why in the 60s when people all these people started taking psychedelics and questioning the war and questioning their jobs and all this stuff the, the establishment freaked out and the idea that is that when you have cultures that are less boundary defined and less hierarchy bound they're going to feel less threatened by this these experiences and be able to embrace them and that's why aboriginal cultures and like you know tribal cultures in south america are able to ingest these substances and embrace the dissolution of these boundaries because their their very existence isn't dependent on them yeah right so i i think that the question then is, if your view of nature, and I think it depends where you look, right? Is, is your view of nature as one that's fundamentally boundary and hierarchy defined? Right. And the closer we get to it, the more we're going to find that. And do you think human beings are inherently violent and dominating and, 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 and kind of identified with these, with these hierarchies? Or is your view of human nature, and it goes even back to Confucius versus Lao Tzu, right? Like the, the Taoist view that if you let people, nature take its course, you will have a, a, a less violent, less less boundary-defined existence. And uh, Or is the role of civilization and of religion and of power to kind of control these instincts that are at bottom are violent and base, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's a really deeply different view of what human nature is and what nature is, right? And I think it's a conversation we can have for probably years to come. Yeah, or and maybe another episode. Yeah, we're an hour and one in, so okay, let's continue tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Good talk.